Um, so I'm, I'm partner at Mensch, we're an innovation agency based here in Oxford and in Berlin. And we look at really innovation in terms of um, challenging some of the wider issues around socioeconomic prosperity. Now last year in the summer I spent two months with my wife who's there at the back in, uh, in Jordan and we were looking at some of the narratives of Jordanian, uh, Syrian refugees who had come into Jordan. And really the stories that you hear from those that have been in the camps are um, at the time were very much about you know, the, the chaos in the camps, the inadequacy of the accommodation, of the housing, of the public spaces, um, and also of, of contests in, in various different forms uh, within the camp. Um, so my background is in urban design and we look very much at kind of this, the relationship between the social and the spatial. You know, the, the physical space always has a result and an influence on the, on the social kind of dynamic and the same is true vice versa. Um, and, uh, and so really I, I, we started looking at, um, at the camps in Jordan as kind of in trying to understand, you know, what are the dynamics, what are the, why is the case there one of contest and chaos? and uh, what can a physical environment look like that would actually be um, more supportive of, uh, of let's say, more, more positive things. Um, and uh, we, we looked at the handbook, the UNHCR Handbook for Emergencies, which really defines a lot of how camps are built. Um, there's guidelines, a lot of it is measurements into um, you know, what, uh, how big is a public space, what does a, a, an individual house look like, where are services situated, and so forth. Um, and so we started looking at, at the handbook and also trying to understand what are the critiques that are already in the handbook and then what are some alternative approaches um, to, to the way that the handbook usually works. And what we ended up doing is um, suggesting a methodological shift between um, this kind of prescriptive one-size-fits-all approach of the handbook to one that's a lot more principle-driven and that draws on the principle primarily of empathy, which is kind of one of the core design um, principles. So the handbook you will know is, um, it's, a, it's a very relatively thick document that, um, that has the outlines a sequence of actions in terms of kind of the, the physical, the logistical, the economic dimensions of, um, of a camp. Um, participation is mentioned as kind of more on a, on a principle level, um, but not necessarily in terms of how can participation actually be implemented. Um, and you will know that uh, in the way that UNHCR usually designs these camps is that the very first thing that happens is that you take typographic, uh, topographical maps or satellite images and uh, a design team or planning team will literally work on based on those maps um, without necessarily going into the context. Um, or the, the actual region. And so what you end up with is these very prescriptive kind of measurements and, and details and then um, you end up with, the, with camps that, that may or may not look like this, which is um, Azraq. And Azraq is a, is a camp in, in Jordan. It was um, designed kind of at the, um, at the height of Zatari, kind of overflowing with, with refugees. I think at one point you hit like 110, 120,000. And so they started designing uh, Azraq, which it was supposed to host 100,000, actually 130,000, but to this day only house 20,000. Um, it's really, it's in the middle of the desert, and, uh, and uh, there is, um, and it's the house that, that you see, it's very uh, kind of rationally planned, um, kind of modernist approach, and there, there's some issues, kind of core issues, one um, that kind of just reflect, there are examples of um, that, that reflect kind of how the planning approach may 
or may not have failed in this case. For instance, there's this, this supermarket at the end of a long road. Uh, this is about 500 meters um, which, uh, from the nearest shelter. So, it, and the distance is actually so much that uh, at one point here in HCR uh, was looking into implementing a shuttle service between the supermarket and, and the actual settlement. You know, which is something that's not necessary, and I'm sure it was done for whatever economic or logistical reasons, uh, but really for the refugees we know now it's, uh, it's complete nonsense. Um, at the same time, the, the houses that they actually live in, you know, they, um, they complain a lot about snakes and mice that come into the, into the flats at night. So they have to fend them off at night while they're trying to sleep. You know, there's no work opportunities because it's located in the middle of the desert, which was, of course, a political decision by the Jordanian government. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of critique around the handbook already. Um, based on a wide variety of literature, both from kind of uh, from the urban planning design point of view, but also from the humanitarian area, um, one of the kind of central issues is is that the handbook really enforces a modernist planning approach. Modernism in architecture was developed like in the 1920s, um, which was this very centralist kind of planning paradigm that was built on a trust in order and hygiene. You know, and that's kind of how. You look at cities that were developed in the 1920s, but even like uh, the concentration camps that the Nazis built were built very much with this kind of modernist idea of control over over a space. Um, now, of course, what you're trying to do when you enforce a level of control is you're trying to reduce heterogeneity and uh, and complexity, and you try to make it simple because simplicity is easier to control, um, and you try to centralize certain functions and services within within the space and. Really, what we see in the handbook is that this planning paradigm has become part of part of what the handbook is, and this kind of results in, um, for instance, sociocultural aspects of a camp actually being neglected. So we have um, camps in that were built in Pakistan for Afghani refugees that were built based on on the handbook, and the first thing that the refugees did when they come, they they took the roofing material of their house and they used it as fences around the individual houses because they didn't want their women to be seen in public space, whereas the handbook really advocates for the women to be in like a, in the public space among the houses and whatnot. So this was like one of the bare examples of uh, you know the handbook um, unfortunately really you know, not really taking into account these social cultural aspects. Um, you have this this reduction of human needs into into quantifiable data that's then of course easier used and can be easier manipulated and and utilized in, in designing the camps. Um, you also have housing kind of being viewed primarily as a physical artifact. You know, it's, it's, it's a house, it's a physical structure, yes, that's true, and, but the approach is it's technology driven. And it kind of, it, it reduces, um, the, or the aim of it is to reduce physical vulnerability, but really neglects these other dimensions of what a house and a home can be for people, because a house and a home is, yes, it's the physical shelter, but at the same time, it's a place for, for emotional and, and psychological care. It's a, it's a place for, for families to develop, to develop some kind of cohesion. Um, and in, in many cases, and in many cultures around the world, a house and a home is also um, very central to kind of the economic development of the family. Um, and these, again, the handbook really doesn't doesn't make give space for any of these, and also the the physical spaces that are designed based on the handbook they're quite inflexible in the way that they're kind of prescribed and designed, um, so that 
if there's this example of a, of a camp in Gonja in Chad, which was designed and uh, for for IDPs. And um, what actually happened is that the architects had never been to the country. Uh, they were planning from I think somewhere in Europe um, that had designed it based on these topographical maps, and uh, and they had imagined that a vegetable garden may be something very useful for. Uh, for refugees to have, to kind of to grow their own vegetables and to earn a livelihood by selling them on the local market or whatever it is. What they didn't realize is that literally all the refugees that had come had no history in agriculture. They were all cattle herders. Right? So they had come, not only were, was their diet supposed to change now, but they also just didn't know how to run a vegetable garden. Right? So this very kind of basic anal uh, problem definition that should have resulted out of the design process unfortunately um, was to a large extent neglected. And of course this is because of, you know, there's a, there's one, there's maybe a lack of institutional support, but also capacity in terms of design. Um, and very often there's these presumptions of, of temporality of a camp. You know, a camp is supposed to be there for, for just a few years, but we know now that 54% of camps are actually in protected crisis. And I think the, the average uh, lifetime of a camp has risen to uh, just under 20 years now. In, insane numbers. Um, so then I started looking at, at this principle of empathy. How many do you have left? Six minutes. So I started looking at, at this principle of empathy. And you know, empathy is a, it was first kind of articulated by a German philosopher in the 19th century called Fischer, who actually talked about empathy in terms of a human being um, empathizing with a physical object, with an inanimate object. And later it was, it became this idea of you know, human beings really interacting with others and, and uh, walking in the shoes of another person by understanding. One of the core principles of empathy is that we all have an empathic horizon. Right? And this empathic horizon, for instance, if you're a designer and uh, you can see, and you're designing for a blind person, you, your horizon is that you can see. And you, you can't really step into his shoes unless you expand your horizon by for instance, putting a blindfold on to actually experience what it is like to be, um, to be blind. And we all have these empathic horizons in many different ways. So someone who is designing for a camp, you know, he doesn't know what the life of a refugee is like. Or it's likely it's going to be a planner who lives in these privileged conditions like, like we do here. Um, so we need to understand how can we really leverage empathy as a, as a capability in, in designing these camps. Um, now there's no coherent methodology for empathy, empathy per se, but there's these design tools which my colleagues have mentioned, which are quite useful really to help designers understand um, the context and the experiences of, of people. And it's most effective really when it is um, when it's drawn from real life experiences rather than something that's been transferred through the organization. You know, so um, for instance, if my colleague here told me about Zafari and about the conditions, yes. That's, that's quite useful to me in terms of getting an insight, but if I as a designer go to the camp myself, I'll be able to recognize and draw on those experiences myself, even in the, in, in the minute details of the, of the camp design when I then actually go out and design the camp. And, but of course we also need to recognize that empathy has certain limitations. You know, empathy uh, and, and design really uh, in general, is, is, is really, they're quite good at kind of defining problems and then designing solutions, but they're really terrible at uh, business viability and yeah, sustainable business model. So it's not what design was planned to be. So really, design needs to be married to other kinds of sustainable practices like like uh, business practices and so forth. Um, now, um, 
it's important also that we see empathy not as kind of this um, in a very let's say abstract uh, superficial way that was just like yeah I'm trying to understand who you are and therefore that's that's a good thing but really I think we can break empathy down into a number of different principles actually that then can be used to operationalize and these were really um, the contribution of of the paper that I then wrote was really just these initial considerations of how empathy could be operationalized in refugee camp design, not to revamp the entire um, system right now, but really just to have this initial thought about you know, what are actually the principles that we should use. I delineated three. One was uh, a journal called Manifaltigkeit, which is uh, similar to what roughly translated as manifoldness or diversity, which was used by Fisher when he first defined empathy. And it kind of uh, it looks at this multi dimensionality of, of refugee ex of, of experiences in general, you know, the, the spatial, the social, the economic, the environmental. And, uh, and really this can be, it's very useful in terms of immersing yourself in a condition and then trying to see these various different dimensions of, of a given situation. At the same time, we re realize that agency really is also core to empathy. We need to, uh, agency in terms of the, the capacity to, to act on one's own will. Um, if we want to be empathetic, we need to give space to those that we want to be empathetic with to actually practice their own will. Well, there needs to be this form of uh, participation um, that allows then for this for this um, for agency to be contributed and then to develop these more kind of organic um, organic solutions rather than you know the designer trying to control a certain issue and developing a certain solution, really give, just fostering a space within which those people that are targeted can actually exercise their own agency and contribute to those solutions. And the last one is primarily one that concerns the, the designers or the planners or architects kind of own attitude, which is one of humility. If you want to be empathetic, you really have to recognize what your own assumptions are. Um, and. Uh, and you can't enforce your own kind of ideas about the hierarchy of, of needs and, and rights that are in a certain place, but you need to make sure that those, um, that the assumption you make actually align with, um, with those of the refugees or whatever target population you're looking at. And so, so these are just some, some of these initial considerations about, around um, empathy, how it could be operationalized in this process, and I'm kind of looking forward to a discussion now around, you know, how can how can we actually use some of these principles and rethinking some of the systems that we have created so far?